Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand made famous by Martina Hingis, John McEnroe, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. She was born in Montreal, Canada, played college tennis at the University of Missouri, and is the co-founder and publisher of the awesome periodical Racket Magazine. Alongside Renee Stubbs, she is the co-host of the Racket Magazine podcast. Caitlin Thompson is today's guest. Caitlin joined us live via Skype from her apartment in downtown New York City. Hi, you there? Hello. You've got a nice place in there. You're in the East Village? That's looking good. Yeah, this is the uh, apartment my wife grew up in, so... She's an OG East Villager. Before they even called it the East Village, they used to call it the Lower East Side. I've, uh, I, I, I don't know if you can see, I've got my, my prized possession. Fantastic. Bjorn Borg, Bjorn Borg, Time Magazine, on the wall. A woman you hear is one of the fastest moving people in tennis media right now. They've been on the scene for three years, and it's uh, Caitlin Thompson from Racket Magazine. Listen, we have a lot to do here. We have a lot to unpack. I mean, we could start anywhere. What aren't we going to talk about? Well, before the world fell apart, you and I were talking about how great we were doing. <laughs> we were in Indian Wells. You know, the weather was nice. You go out there, especially if you live in New York. It's sunny. You're in the desert. You think, hey, everything's all right. We all, you know, we've been making this independent magazine for, as you said, three years, three and a half, and like... Looks like we've stabilized. We got to hire some people. We brought on two people this year to help us do stuff. So we're not doing every single thing ourselves. I was looking at you thinking, oh, the podcast is doing great. You're getting amazing guests. Everything's great. Hours later, the tournament's canceled. Pandemonium, cats and dogs sleeping together. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, and now we're in this new reality where we're watching exos on TV and recording podcast episodes about a sport that we miss, but, you know, hope, hopefully comes back safely at some point soon. It's a not so time, man. Let's do this. It's the five set format of the first sets, the off the court report. Um, you are with wife and child in New York City, the epicenter of, of the world. And certainly the pandemic. What has your 15 weeks now been like? It's been uh, pretty surreal. I mean, New York is uh, obviously a tumultuous, chaotic, intense place, which is one of the things that I love the most about it. The first couple of weeks were a little bit hairy. I came back from Indian Wells, flew on the red eye from Palm Springs, arrived in New York. It was like I came back to a dystopian science fiction novel. Masks everywhere people with their heads down. It was real bleak, real fast. Uh, and actually my wife had coronavirus. So she was sick pretty much from the minute I got home. She started uh, not feeling well the first weekend basically of the pandemic. And I didn't really believe her at first cause she's a little bit of a hypochondriac. Uh, and I was like, really, it's day one of this thing. You already have it. Uh, and then sure enough, you know, she couldn't get out of bed for three weeks and I had to sort of solo parent cook, teach, uh, and, you know, try to do some business here and there while she was pretty much in bed trying to recover. Couldn't get it to a doctor. It was a little scary. I never ended up getting it, um, you know, but but the first couple of March weeks were not super great, uh, you know. How did uh, Claire, I believe is, is her name, how did Claire's, uh, first of all, how sick did she get? 
And second of all, how has Claire being sick from coronavirus um, affected your perception of, of, of it? Yeah, great question. Um, she was sick enough that she was pretty incapacitated, not being able to really get out of bed for more than 30 minutes at a stretch, right? Like she'd try to kind of foray out into the living room, maybe have a bite to eat, join us as we were doing school stuff, me and my kid, or, or playing a, you know, a board game, and then she'd have to go back to bed. Just being on her feet was exhausting. She called the doctor. Obviously, this is a part of the New York experience when it was just hitting us so hard. There was no space in the hospital, so they, was, they were pretty um, aggressive about saying, if you are not deathly ill, you have to stay home. So we called the doctor, and they said, look, we, unless you get really, really, really sick where your fever is over 103, 104, don't bother coming in. And it kind of hovered around 102. So it was never dire, but it was not super fun. And I remember thinking, I'm about to get this, which, you know, I have my own feelings about, but I'm not particularly like, you know, at risk, but, oh, this is probably going to be pretty unpleasant if, if looking at her is any indication, yeah. but who's going to take care of our kid? Who is going to take care of our kid? Who, how could we possibly put a kid through school now, which is what we have to do? Um, you know, feed him three meals a day, entertain him when we can't expose him to anybody else. Cause presumably he has it too. So there was a couple of days there where I thought it was imminent. I was going to get sick too. And then I was just worried for my child. Um, and him having supervision, essentially, I never got it. Um, like I said, and now she has the antibodies and I don't, I don't know how, but you know, she's feeling pretty smug about it now, but I think it made me take this seriously in the sense that, you know, we are at heart living in a world, communicating and collaborating with each other in a way that I hope is led by empathy and what I have seen from the vast majority of people here in New York, the vast majority of people around the world, empathetically and intelligently offering, offering funds, putting masks on, being thoughtful about social distancing really is a, is a testament to like how connected people feel to each other. And obviously there's some huge exceptions to that where we can look at, you know, these like white supremacists who are marching in courthouses, refusing to wear masks or, you know, athletes holding exhibition tours with absolutely no safety precautions being, uh, you know, recognized or held. So there's some glaring examples, but on the whole, my perception of it has been, this is serious. It's really contagious. And while it probably won't kill you unless you have a risk, uh, you know, going in, it's not pleasant. Um, you know, so take it seriously and, and, and let empathy for other people be your guide. Cause I was wearing a mask from the jump. And the reason I was wearing a mask from the jump is not because I was scared of getting it. It was scared because I assumed I had it and I was scared of giving it. And I think that's the place from which I hope people can, can sort of operate, which is act like you have it and respect other people. And, you know, look, you can still go outside. You can still play tennis. You can still like go to the farmer's market and bike around and, and enjoy the world. Just don't be a dick. Just don't be a dick. What grade would you give yourself for social distancing for the last 15 weeks? I'm giving myself a B, a solid B. Yeah, I would say B plus because I've been going to a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests here um, uh, for the last four weeks. Some alone, some with my sister who is in our quarantine bubble and some with my wife and son. I try to take my son to the ones that are a little bit more sort of like music focused or kind of have some marching or some movement because he can't really sit around and listen to people give speeches just because he's six. Um, you know, and, and obviously when you're in a crowd like that, the social distancing measures are a little bit 
um, you know, challenge. That said, the, the protests here have been incredibly, incredibly, and I'm sure this is true in LA too, right? Because I've seen some pretty amazing photos uh, from what you're, what you're looking yeah. at, Craig. But the people in the protests are being extremely thoughtful about making sh absolutely sure everybody has a mask. They don't let you really in to the sort of protest area unless you are wearing a mask. Um, and we haven't seen spikes from the, from the protests. Uh, but to me, it's sort of a, it's like a, I want to participate. I want to show my son we're participating. You know, it feels like we want to look back on history and sort of say we stood on the right side of this. So, you know, but, but I think probably B, B plus maybe if I'm being generous to myself. I like a B plus. Uh, let's move into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. We typically, we'd be talking about week one Wimbledon, I guess. Um, and, we're, and we're not doing that. But, but I'm going to do something today with you to hit a bunch of subjects in this, in this On the Court Report. So let's not lay down too hard on any one unless you feel the need. Ready? I'll keep it moving. Renee coaching Jeannie Bouchard. I mean, Renee coaching Jeannie Bouchard. I love it. Uh, Jeannie, look, it's a Hang on a second. Huge... For, for our listeners, Renee Stubbs is on the... Renee Stubbs is on the bag for Jeannie Bouchard at the Charleston Tennis Exo, which has been highly watchable. Um, and Renee hosts, co-hosts the Racket Magazine podcast and is a... Um, friend and confidant of uh of the magazine and of caitlin um renee on the bag for genie very unusual you love to see it i'm uh i'm curious we'll see i don't know how permanent it's going to be i think she's just they're kind of getting to know each other but i think uh for me look genie bouchard great set of skills didn't go far beyond the the initial run uh, what more can she do with her game? Is somebody like Renee able to break it down and maybe take her to, to the next level? Undoubtedly. And if nothing happens and if it didn't, doesn't get better, what, where's the downside? You know. Listen, when who did she call you? How did that come about? You got to give me something here. Uh, so Renee is really close to Steffi, Graf, mm. and Andre Agassi. And uh, I guess Jeannie was out in Las Vegas working out with those guys and Gil Reyes, the legendary trainer. Um, and they said, Hey, Renee, why don't you, why don't you come out and give it a, give, kick the tires and see how you guys get along? You know, cause I, as I've come to understand a lot of this coaching stuff is about chemistry. I mean, you're very close with Brad Gilbert, a, a famously fantastically successful coach player also, obviously, but coach of Agassi, you know, a lot of it is about how well you get along, how well you guys can jive. So did, and I think that's the test. So did Renee buzz out to Vegas? So she's going to after the after Charleston. this. So they went. So they're starting in Charleston. They're starting at a at a tournament atmosphere, just because I think that's what the schedule was kind of allowing. But also, you know, uh, it's a good way to kind of see where things are. She had a great win the other night over Layla Fernandez. I don't know how she did last night against Sloan, but I think when I when I went to bed, the match was pretty tight. She lost. Um, the level was actually not good um, from both players when I watched it, um, but. It's that funky green clay. They were playing it. It seemed like it was midnight, and I'm not going to dive too deep into the level just now. But um, that's interesting. Novak Djokovic, um, complete Greek tragedy. We, I heard you talk about it on your other podcast. I mean, you can't make that. You just can't make it up. You just can't make it up. We are uh, – Racket 
had a newsletter yesterday written by Gary Nathan of Deadspin fame, who called Novak a clown six times in the opening paragraph, and now the uh, Nole fam is threatening to get him to sue us, which I, I don't think they have a great understanding of libel law or the American press uh, sort of culture. I, there's nothing I can add to that more than I really want to know what you think about that, Craig. Can I off? Can I on the court report you on this? Please give me your unadulterated, because mine are well-known and available many places. Well, you know, it, it was just such a cacophony of errors from the top to the bottom. Um, hubris is a fascinating character flaw. If, if Sasha Barrett Cohen wrote the episode, like, let's have a tennis tournament in, in the Balkans, and we'll invite all our buddies, and then we'll go dance like we're at a bar mitzvah in Long Island. Yeah. I mean, it would, it's a film script. I just think aside from questioning his mental state or aside from calling him names or aside from, you know, the, you know, legitimate concern. I think a lot of us have like, he's the number one player in the world. He's undefeated this year. He's president of the players council. It's a shame if he gets, sick in a sense that he is not able to compete anymore, which hopefully won't happen, but you don't know. It's a scary virus. Hopefully he hasn't derailed the U.S. Open or any other sort of big plans for the rest of the year, but who knows, because everybody was watching that thing. The one thing I kind of wish for him is, I think he's in an echo chamber. You know that famous uh, dialogue between Lars Ulrich and his dad in the Metallica documentary, where he's listening to the album and he doesn't like it, and he's like, I think you are in echo chamber. It's like, that's that's <laughs> to be what's happening like Novak get one or two people from outside of your very loyal tribe to just give you some back and forths because nothing is worse than drinking your own Kool-Aid and I think that's to me part of this right yeah I know also I was going to share um to the to that point one of the great disappointments of my re-entry into tennis um you know and I consider when I wrote that article for you guys, my real re-entry um, uh, a few years ago has been the blatant and brutal obnoxiousness of these Rafa, Fed, and and the most insane Novak Djokovic, like blind faith, crazy supporters. I can't quite explain how disappointing that is to me. I never watch tennis in that way. I mean, no, me neither. It's so hard to relate to, and I have to imagine it's two things. Social media makes it really easy to bandwagon. Um, so social media just the, itself as a tool is probably, you know, like as an amplifier, as a sort of incendiary effect, or at least a sort of multiplier effect of this. But I agree with you, and I think the game, I can't, I can't tell, and I don't, I mean, it's the Novak fans are different from the Rafa and Roger fans, which is to say they're all blinded by love and, and bias. But the Novak fans feel like this additional sort of like they've been bullied. And so therefore they are like uh, have some sort of like righteous indignation. Um, but I can't I wonder if any of these tribes are actual tennis fans. Are they tennis fans? Are they just fans of these? Like it's like this sort of Trumpian thing. And I and I would ask, like, I think the tour has done a bad job, particularly the men's side in turning the tour from what you experienced as a stringer, as a documentarian, you know, in your first sort of go round on the tennis merry-go-round, it was about the tour. It was a traveling circus. It's about these no doubt. beautiful 
variety of personalities, of surfaces, of locales, of fanships. That's cool. That's no doubt. No There's doubt. There's nothing to me less interesting than hearing dumb partisans argue non-factually about their favorite with no semblance for an actual game, like any actual discussion about tennis or any acknowledgement of factuality on either side. It's like what our politics discussion has become. It's just about blind partisanship. And one side is trying to have a conversation about facts and the other is convinced that their guy is, you know, uh, the Messiah. So I can't wait for all three of them to retire. And then I hope that this, this sort of toxic fanship just, goes away it do, you're you're not a real tennis fan if you can't be a fan of more than one player you used to feel, used to hear i'm gonna leave it here but yes yes and I, i'm just gonna say you know in in baseball <laughs> you you would hear it didn't matter who was in the world series the there'd always be a group that would say tim mccarver hates our team no matter what he says he hates our team he's always impressed and you're like you know you're like there's no shot this guy hates your team, man. The guy, the guy is a famous guy, and he's broadcasting the game. There's no shot he hates your team. No. There's no shot Ben Rothenberg hates your guy. He may hate. He may call out. He may call out the fact that life and death is being affected by us by the the number one tennis player in the world. Because that's 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 part of being a journalist. I think they're also not used to seeing, I know you went into here, but I do want to make this one point, which is I think tennis has not had really rigorous journalism for a really long time. And so what Ben Rothenberg does and why people hate him is because he's actually doing journalism and very few of them are. They have this sort of like gentility that if you were in a basketball press room, I mean, Craig, you covered boxing for years. Are the journalists who cover boxing like getting offended and biting their thumb at each other the way that these like tennis prisses are like, Oh God, you've offended my sensibilities. It's like, no, it's raw. It's real. Journalism is supposed to be pugilistic. It makes the sport more interesting. It makes the culture more interesting. It makes people more invited to participate. I'm not saying you have to be a dick, but like, call it like you see it. The number one player of the world is endangering the health of thousands of people, if not more. That's a factually accurate statement that needs to be put out there. And, and there are many other examples where tennis could have benefited greatly from having some clear eye. Look, Nadal doesn't believe in equal pay. Let's call him out on that shit. It's not cool. It's not accurate. He doesn't have his facts. And it's it's widely reported. The Western media owes itself, owes tennis a, to do a better job. And I think when these fanships get so offended, like, how dare you, you journalist, have it out for my guy. It's like, we don't have it out for any guy. If anything, it's lame to care about only one guy, and that's on you. And by the way, I, 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 I interviewed Ben, and, and, and that should be one of the takeaways, is that you stop becoming a fan when you are a writer for the New York Times. Um, any interesting perspectives on the the exos we've been seeing? Yeah, uh, I agree. The the clay, the Capital One, Charleston exo has been really watchable. Some really good tennis. You know, you I, somebody tweeted yesterday about Danielle Collins screaming come on to an empty stadium as being the energy that they tried to approach their quarantine workouts with and i just think like you know these guys are real fucking intense and sometimes the crowd is needs to be there to, to amplify it but a lot of times it doesn't i actually thought mortoglu's uh thing was the best thing i've seen the the ultimate tennis showdown the format really great really compelling no warm-up no uh a, a shot clock on the serve no so you no towel 
No towel. No, all these stalling techniques that we're used to watching that just drag out a match so that it's super boring and somebody's bouncing the ball 400 times, not happening. It's fast. It's interesting. I don't know that the, the sort of cards worked. I don't know what you thought about that. But just good tennis and quickly played in a fast format. I thought that was the best thing. I'd love to see more of it. And and by the way, um, love him or hate him or or, or or you don't have to do either. Patrick Muradoglu, uh walks it like he talks it. Um, he did something responsible. It looks to me like it was done responsibly. He's trying new stuff. And that's what he said he wanted to do. 100%. You, he, you couldn't have said it better. He put his money where his mouth is, put on what looked to be fever checks, masks, no towels, ball kids, testing. You know, look, do we want fans and the excitement of the atmosphere? Absolutely. Doing it responsibly right now is not a possibility. So, like, this is the best thing that I've seen. And um, I'm really applauding all these other exos trying to figure out how to bring us quality tennis at a time that's really challenging. Um, and I think Patrick Murataglu is you know, kind of chief among them. He said he was going to do it. He did it. It's great. I hope he does more. U.S. Open. Happy that so far it seems to be on. Um, no fans, no press. Uh, it'll be fascinating to see who shows up. Um, and the discussion for me is more, do we have an asterisk next to the winner of this event this year? Is it like a, is it like a baseball record where you, you got to say like, Oh, but a strike, you know, shortened this season or I don't know. What do you think? I think if you win seven matches in two weeks, you win the U S open. Man. That is it. I'm going to steal that. Now, um, is there any truth to the rumor? You will be on site broadcasting for the USTA. <laughs> I don't know where you heard that. Uh, not that I know of. Okay. Last year, I helped the podcast a little bit. Uh, the daily sort of like what to watch for matches, which was something I very much enjoyed doing. I don't love providing match commentary. There's so many people who do it better than I do. But I thought I like to think, actually, and you and I are similar in this way. I like to think that I'm a pretty good hype person for tennis. And a lot of my friends ask me who I should go see the next day. And so that was how I was used in this daily USTA US open podcast, which was like, tell me about tomorrow. Give me a heads up about who the players are. Cause then I get to talk about their personalities and I'm like, go check out Benoit pair. He's a class, a lunatic. He's going to win. He's going to hit trick shots. He's probably going to rope a dope. You know, he might lie down in the middle of the court, but you will not regret the money you spent on your ticket. If you go watch him, uh, you know, and I think for me, that's the role that I see for myself in tennis, which is trying to get people who maybe don't have a way to get in. A way to get in. Uh, talk of WTA and ATP merger. If it's actually on the table, I would love to see it. I don't think Roger Federer tweets anything by accident. That's I think what he I is thought. I think he's an incredibly uh, calculated and strategic person. And I think when he tweets something about the tours merging and wouldn't it be a great time to think about that? Uh, you got to think there's something more to that. I mean, team eight, his talent agency that he formed with Tony Godsick, his former agent at IMG slash WME, you know, did sign, well, I don't know what it was two years ago, Coco Goff, who is widely seen to be like the next mega, mega, mega star in terms of not only tennis court, uh, you know, achievements, but also off-court endorsements. So I don't think that they will lose money by betting big on the women's tennis game. But, you know, for many people who don't know it, 
and we're working on a project that's going to try to bring this story um, to TV or film. We'll see where we get with it. But, you know, tennis and, and the women in men's tour had a conversation in the early 2000s about merging. This was pre-Federer, pre-Nadal, certainly pre-Djokovic. Uh, you know, it was the, the waning days of Agassi. Uh, you know, you had Leighton Hewitt, you had Marit Safin, Pat Rafter. Mm. But the women's tour was really where the, the center of gravity was. They were out earning the men in terms of endorsements. They just signed a giant, giant deal with Sony Ericsson. And the the top 10 was just a murderer's row. It was Capriati. It was both Williams sisters. It was Monica Sellis. It was, uh, sorry, Ma Martina Hingis. It was Justine Hanna. It was Kim Kleisters. Uh, you know, Yelena Yankovic. I mean, this was just like absolute murderer's row of like Grand Slam champion quality tennis and variety and personalities and style. And the women were outdrawing the men for the first time since the tour started in, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. So at this moment, 2003 it was, the tours could have combined. The men didn't want to sit down and actually talk out terms with the women. They still wanted to earn way more. The men walked away, then Federer emerges, and they see no need to do it. So I am optimistic that everybody has now learned, because we have the data, that joint events do best. Tennis is so unique. It's the only sport where men and women can be on the literal same court playing side by side. That's yeah. so amazing. You know, and I think if you don't want to see the tours joined out of some sense of like equality and it's the right thing to do, then do it out of just business sense. It draws the best crowds. It has the most engaged audience and it makes the most money. No brainer. And the players like it better. Nick Kyrgios practicing with, Nick Kyrgios practicing with Amanda Anisimova, um, the whole thing. 100%. Nadal having a warm-up with Sharapova. Yeah. It's cool. It's interesting. It makes the game textured. And I think, you know, the only players who don't want it, Novak Djokovic being one of them, Justin Gimmelstab famously was against uh, paying the women equally, much less joining a tour with them. I think their voices are dissipating because I think we're living in a world where, like, look, the U.S. women's national soccer team outperforms the men's. That's not to shit on the men. It's just to say, hey, look, a healthy system allows for both. So maybe the women can help pull up the men and get them to be better and more on the world stage. That's a world I think we all would like to be living in because it's cooler and it's it's a more nuanced and sort of textured world anyway. Um, but the fact that it's good for business means I, there's pretty much no argument against it. I'm just going to actually target this a little even more than I – I was going to just you know kind of bring up you know what we've seen in the past few weeks with athletes stepping up and taking a social uh, position that we hadn't really seen – from tennis players, um, namely, I really feel like Naomi Osaka, Coco Goff have taken a special position that we haven't seen uh, during this George Floyd murder, uh, Ahmad Arbery murder moment. Do you care to share your perspectives on that? I think about it. First of all, it's fantastic. Um, it's exhilarating, isn't it? It's exhilarating. We have, you and I have lived our most of our lives in the corporate sports era where, you know, Michael Jordan famously, and I think regretfully by his own admission, wouldn't come out against Strom Thurmond in his home state of North Carolina because Republicans buy shoes too, you know? And I think that attitude has prevailed. I think you've had a lot of really bland corporate nonsense spouted by athletes who don't want to get into anything. They don't want to be political. Um, and, Two thoughts. I'll try to keep them brief because I have a lot, but I'll try to say two things. Number one, the specific youth movement that Naomi Osaka, Coco Goff, somebody like Anisimova, um, you know, Kyrgios, other players 
have Francis Tiafo famously, uh, you know, made a viral video, you know, hands up, rackets down. Um, and, and I think what I am really encouraged by is that the idea of athletes being above politics or athletes having too much fealty to their corporate sponsors and too scared to speak out is changing because I think people want athletes to be true. And I think they want them to be authentic and I think they want them to speak their minds. And I think if, if we have created an atmosphere where athletes feel like they can actually be themselves, then it's a huge win for sports as well as like basic human righteousness, which is what this black lives matter movement is about. It's a righteous racial uprising, you know, that has responded to 400 years of, of, of despicable treatment, um, you know, of black people by white people specifically in America, but obviously with ramifications everywhere else. So, so number one, it's exhilarating and great. Number two, I interviewed Billie Jean King about this very specifically, um, in the context of gender when we had her on the podcast two years ago. And I was saying, you know, how do you train athletes to be activists? Because tennis, tennis has been generally on the right side of history. You know, we had trailblazers, Arthur Ashe, Althea Gibson. We had gay trailblazers, Martina, Billie Jean coming out. We had gender trailblazers, the women leading the charge, creating their own sponsorships, creating their own tour. You know, tennis had the first trans athlete uh, in Renee Richards. And so tennis has oftentimes been on the right side of history. And so where did it go that we got this corporate sort of um, environment where people were too scared? And I think in a strange way, Craig, and go with me here, a lot of this is connected. We were talking earlier about Djokovic and the big three. We were talking about activism and corporatism and a real failure to innovate in terms of the, the formats. And now what we're seeing with these exhibitions and the fact that pandemic time has meant that we can experiment. I remember fondly tennis as this crazy place with crazy personalities, a variety of beautiful sort of fabric of locations, personalities, styles, surfaces, whatever. Yeah, guys and listening to different music. 100%. Seven in the 70s and 80s, we had this incredibly vibrant sport, and it showed in terms of popularity based on the amount of public courts that were created, the amount of recreational tennis that was being played. You saw tennis in movies, books, TV shows, whatever. In the 80s and 90s, it seems to me about three or four big guys, mostly men, uh, agencies, brands, got together and decided the only thing that mattered was corporate sponsorship. The only thing that mattered were Grand Slams. And the only thing that mattered were stars. And most of those stars were men. I would and add the television to it. 100%. Those amplifying factors basically meant the sport at its richest got richer. At its most popular players got more popular. But at the expense of this thing that we love about tennis, which is that it's this wild and woolly traveling circus, the more we can do to bring it back to that, I don't think it's unrelated to social issues. I don't think it's unrelated to fanship. I don't think it's unrelated to TV and broadcast. I don't think it's unrelated to sponsorship. I think we need to create a tour where this, the 70s and 80s really paved the way for how we can be successful and draw in all these fans and capture the imagination of a lot of people. Tennis is global. Tennis is multiracial. Tennis uh, transcends class. It transcends race. It transcends gender. And it always has, and that's awesome. I can play a tennis match with you. You can play a tennis match with my son. My son can play a 70-year-old woman, and everybody's playing tennis, and it's a beautiful thing. And so for me, tennis really is one of the few sports you can do that, and, and I, love, I would love for our tennis tour to start to look more like that, and I think it's starting to. And just one word on Coco Goff. Um, you know, she's 16. Muhammad Ali won the Rome Olympics when he was 18, 
she gave a speech in in her hometown that I thought it it made me think of Ali, and I hope that continues. Hundred percent. That Delray Beach speech yeah. that she gave, also tying together different social movements. This is a young black woman. This is a woman who supports gay rights. This is a woman who's very conscious about the race conversation. These things are not unrelated. It's about power and speaking truth to power. And I think what is so refreshing, and to contrast her with another athlete we were talking about earlier in this conversation, she is not in an echo chamber. Naomi Osaka is not in an echo chamber. These are people who are out in the world taking on challenging viewpoints, talking them out, holding firm in their beliefs, but also interacting with the rest of the world in a way that I think is really beneficial. And it gives me a lot of hope for this generation, not only on the tennis court, but also generally. Like These are kids who are not having it anymore, who are not told to stay in their place and you know keep your politics out of my sports. It's like, no, that's not the, that's not the era in which we're living. And I think you know, sports has always been political. Life has always been political. And if you hear that you should keep your political opinions to yourself, it's because they're challenging someone in power whose politics you threaten. Coco Goff said, I was eight years old when Trayvon Martin was murdered. And here we are again. Yeah. Normally we would do a third set, but since this second set, we've gone so long and it's been so great. I'm going to buzz us right into the fourth. I know you're not a proponent of five sets anyway, so well, I'm going to... I'm gonna buzz us. I'm gonna buzz us into the fourth set. This is the ten ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. We just go fast. Are you ready? I'm always ready. Favorite media tournament for you? You've been to Rome. I haven't. I'd love to. So far, Wimbledon. They treat you so well. You get strawberries and cream. The media uh, accommodation and the way that you have uh, access to the courts is fantastic. And they actually understand what media is there to do, which is to broadcast and amplify and challenge and push the sport further. The All England Lawn Tennis Club led by Alex Willis on the comms team is impeccable. Check out their digital, their social, their their messaging. They are on the top of their game and they make journalists be better. Plus you get some strawberries and cream. So Wimbledon probably. Favorite tournament as a fan? Roland Garros. I hate to pick the big ones. I do like smaller tournaments generally, but Roland Garros, it's so breathtakingly beautiful. That red clay, uh, it's in time of the year where you're just dying to get out because it's still cold here in New York and you get to Paris and it's sunny and breezy. Hard to beat. The new stadium is insane. Roland Garros. You know what? You can't, something about tennis at 8 p.m. in Paris, there's just nothing like that in, in the spring. What tournament is the greatest player tournament that you're hearing about? Players love D.C., they say DC takes really, really good care of them. Uh, Mark Ein runs this tournament at the City Open. Men and women have uh, been around for a long time. They treat the players really well. They love the hotel that they get to play at. Keeley, the only one of the few women tournament directors in uh, on the pro level, um, is doing, for what I can tell, a great job. Players tell me DC is surprisingly great. I've also heard great things about the Australian, but I've never been. Your favorite city? My hometown of Montreal. Got to go to the Coupe Roger and pump that up, pump the tires a little bit. Plus, Tennis Canada has a lot to celebrate these days, don't you think? Caitlin is. Uh, does that make you Quebecois? That's not right. You're just. You're not Quebecois. You're. Uh, you're a Canadian, from Montreal. Born in Montreal, but the Anglophone part of town. The way we divide up Montreal is if you're you're with the French or you're with the English. You can't be with both. Your favorite court can be any court in the world. 
It's got to be a court you play great tennis on or a court you love watching tennis on. I mean, you got to, you, you could have two. You could have two. It's the 10 ball scramble. You can do whatever you want, really. You could pass. I'm gonna, you're going to have to, you're going to have to edit a lot of these silences out. These are fucking hard questions. Uh, I mean, for my listeners, if you see her face right now, you may, you, she is as stumped as anybody has ever been stumped in the 10 ball scramble. I'm going to, you're going to have to, I don't know. You're going to have to chop this entire part out. My like, I, uh, ah. okay. I'll say it. my favorite court is the East river, ice rink, unpaved, cracked, strewn, beautiful East river view, lower East side public tennis court. Cause it's where I play with friends, family, and uh, it's ugly, but it's New York city. Your favorite racket. At the moment, I'm really liking the head gravity. I think it's got a nice sort of swing through. Uh, I got to give some ups to my guy, Eric, who founded Fury Sport, Brooklyn native, black owned business, up and coming startup. Check it out. Uh, Classic is the Prince Graphite. Played with it all juniors. Never changed. 20 years playing with that thing. Grip size. Used to be five eighths. Went down to three eighths. Five eighths? I don't know. Hold your hand up. Caitlin's got long fingers. Um, how do you string your racket? Loose. Do you have a, do you have a string preference? No. I uh, actually, sin gut, 16, loose. I like it loose. I break them a lot. It's fine with me. I like to adjust them. It brings me back to my youth. Loose as a goose. Um, big entourage or lean and mean? I like a big entourage. I got lots of friends. I like uh, I like the Racket family. You mentioned you've written two pieces for Racket. We got Stretch Armstrong up in the mix. We got, you know, one day we'll be rolling in with Pusha T. We've got a whole crew. I, I always like the more the merrier vibe. It gets, uh, it gets a bit, you know, the piece you wrote about the Huggy, uh, the competition out in Long Island among finance guys, BJ Armitrage running the show, playing backgammon and drinking tea with all the, like that's, to me, that's tennis. Tennis should be experienced with a bunch of friends. On-court coaching. Love it. Better for fans, better tennis to watch. Off-court coaching, screaming and yelling from the box to the player. Happening anyway, just codify it and mic them up. Your best win. Nationals, girl, clay court, championships, girls 18s, Memphis. Beat the girl who ended up playing one at Tulane. Got myself a tennis scholarship. Your worst loss? The very brief foray I played into Futures. Uh, I lost to Ann Wen, who I think went on to start at Notre Dame. Got two points, and at one point hit a ball that bounced three times before it hit the net. Let's move into our fifth set, uh, fifth and final set. This is the queen of the court. If you could change anything in the sport with one, you know, one fell swing of the racket, what would it be? Hard to pick, many. Caitlin always has a lot. We're going to try to dial her, we'll try her to her main ones. Main one, we talked about five sets, we talked about uncle coaching, we talked about format and, uh, you know, keeping the pace up. I would take the credentials away of every single media person covering tennis and start over. Meaning, I would give back a few people their credentials, but kick out the lot of them. You go into these press rooms, 
they're old, they're male, they're white, and they're writing or creating content for an audience of tennis that hasn't existed for 30 years. And you better believe they don't like change. So for me, we want a big, broad, dynamic audience. A lot of that has to do with the storytellers. Burn it down, start over, more shows like yours, more creators like Geary, more dead spins, fewer stuffy old men telling you what's what and who's who in a, in a dead newspaper. Asking tragic questions in uh, press conferences and, in a sense, alienating the players to the press. 100%. That 100%. happens. It happens all the time. The players hate press. They hate press not because the press is asking hard questions and, and challenging them and treating them like the um, you know interesting, varied people they are. It's because they don't know anything about tennis and they ask them sexist, uninformed, uh, offensive questions. It's an embarrassment. Being in a press center at a tennis tournament is an embarrassment. I mean, that's the first time we've heard that. It's a tremendous perspective. You know how I feel about what I've seen out there. And the, the reason I, 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 I was stunned when I first worked my way back in because we can't book guests. We can't approach agents because they'll just say no because of they've been sensitized to uh, bozos. They've been sensitized. They think everyone, they, they think that the press is bozos because so many years of, you know, bozoism has kind of permeated the, the landscape. It's interesting. We tried to talk about this on the podcast uh, where we interviewed Andy Roddick, and I made a comment to Renee about how uh, most of the tennis press is, is absolutely despicable. Uh, and we had an interesting back and forth with John Wertheim at Sports Illustrated, who got in our case and said we hurt a lot of journalists' feelings. And I would say, too bad. Get over it. If you're hurt by that, then you're probably part of the problem. And if you're not hurt by that, then you see what we're trying to do, which is to enliven, in, improve, and diversify the press corps who covers tennis. Guess what? These players might not like more direct questioning, but they would certainly respect it and understand it if it showed that more readers, more viewers, more audience was tuning into tennis and making the sport more popular. You've spent time in other press rooms for other sports. Imagine if basketball had an old white male genteel attitude where ah, we, we're not actually going to be super well informed about the sport, but we're going to ask like either offensive questions or softball questions, and we're all going to look the same and write the same stuff. Basketball would be so much worse off for it. Instead, you have a pugilistic, diverse podcast, blog, newspaper, magazine, television. You got everything covering the sport. That is what I would love to see for tennis. And I think ultimately the players would too. What's on slate for Racket Magazine? This has been a funky time to be in the magazine business, I can imagine. Funky time. We held our Wimbledon issue for obvious reasons, uh, but we're actually selling a ton of magazines because people are bored at home. The one thing we got going that I'm super thrilled about is my partner, David, who's our editor, uh, who does all of the um, unseen, sort of thankless, but incredible work, uh, award-winning work now. Uh, he, he just won an award for our Issue 10 cover by Deborah Roberts on Venus Williams. He masterminded our book. We have a book coming out toward the end of the summer. It's an anthology of some of the best writing in the magazine. I'm super proud of it. Dave got a cover blurb from both Billie Jean King and Pavement Stephen Malkmus, which I have to say is probably the only book in the universe that has both those blurbs. Uh, so uh, obviously I'll be uh, shilling it every which way because we're excited about it and we want people to read it. Fantastic. A Racket Magazine, an anthology, a book coming out. Is there, is there a name to it or is it just going to be the Racket Magazine? No. 
it's gonna be Racket Magazine, the book. I, Dave, Dave played it. Well, it was a, it was a, you know, seventy-six mile an hour kick serve to the second, second serve uh, there. Not a, uh, not a risky. <laughs> Listen, always a pleasure. Thank you, Craig. And I just can't thank you enough. You know, I know the courts are back open at the East River, so um, have a great hit this afternoon. And uh, Caitlin Thompson, you are released. It's always a pleasure, Craig. Huge thank you to Caitlin Thompson. Also like to thank Sergio Tacchini. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout. The new Quarantine Classic t-shirts have arrived in white and Terabat 2. The shirts are a throwback to the junior tennis tournament shirts we used to get as kids. They're selling like hotcakes. They're going to go quick. If you're interested, shoot me a message. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.